Amen. Hey, thank uh, the band, if you would. And it's really great to have Danny and Raina here. It's great to see you guys. Appreciate you so much. I'm glad that you could be here while Josh and Amy get a little uh, R&R back in, back in Tennessee. Uh, we want them to visit Tennessee so that they desperately want to come back to Colorado. So that's what we want. I mean, it's pretty there, right? But I mean, it's not Colorado. He's watching right now. So I figured I'd give him a laugh at home. Happy New Year. I hope, uh, I hope you're ready. And, I, and if we saw anything over the last week, it was, you know, thank goodness 2020 is actually hindsight for the first time, right? That's what they say. 2020 is hindsight now. It's behind us. We're done. Uh, oh, I want to put all that behind me. But here's, here's what I hope and pray for all of us. Um, God never wastes any pain, trouble, Difficulty, experiences, never. If you have your eyes open and your ears open, God won't waste anything on you. You will take something from every experience and God will make you more like his son Jesus. He'll shape you and form your your wants and your desires and your hopes and your dreams and all of that. He'll do all of that. And so I'm... You know, there were lots of things about 2020 I didn't like at all. Um, But in the middle of some of it, God said, pay attention to this. Watch what's happening here. Do you see me shaping you in these ways? And I hope he's done that for you. And I'll, I'll bring into 2021, you know, maybe some difficulties from last year, maybe ways in which my heart hasn't quite healed yet or whatever, all kinds of things. But God is in the middle of that and he'll meet you there. And so I don't know, you, you probably, uh, you might be old enough that you've given up on resolutions altogether. Um, I don't know what your hopes and what you're thinking about in terms of 2021, whether you are a goal setter or you just kind of make some plans or I, I don't know what you're doing, but my hope is that you'll find a way to do two really important things, to engage with other people and, and deepen some of your friendships, really, really key. If you learned anything over 2020, I hope it's at least some of that. And then engage in God's word somehow because it is God's word, as Hebrews says, that, that shapes us and, and as a scalpel divides our, our thoughts and our motives and helps us to become more like Jesus. And there were some moments this year when I wasn't very much like Jesus at all. And I want his word to shape me so that uh, I don't have to learn some lessons over again. And so uh, I hope you're doing that. Uh, we just had a group of people here in the church that finished up just on the 31st, on New Year's Eve, reading through the entire New Testament uh, through the entire year. We did it online with each other uh, uh, through a, a thing called the Bible app. It's uh, made by a company called YouVersion. This is a, a company that was started by Life Church. Life Church, Craig Rochelle, is a church in Oklahoma that has churches all over the world, actually, and they're a multi-site church, and they started this nonprofit kind of component of their church and they developed this Bible app. This is what it looks like if you're downloading it from the Play Store or from the iOS store and uh, you'll see it. If you search version, you'll find it as well. And what they do is they, they create reading plans that kind of guide you through reading scripture. And we picked one at the beginning of 2020. Little did we know we would be dispersed like we were and we were reading through. And I don't know, there were about a 150 of us or so that started and I don't know how many finished, but uh, it's probably less than that is my guess. But um, 
but we, we read through and some of us started again, some of us stopped again, and we just kind of just kept returning to it. We have picked out about six different reading plans to take us through 2021, and there's a variety of things, some Old Testament, some New Testament. And so you'll get a chance throughout the year to start again or stop again, or maybe you'll see we're reading through a passage of Scripture or a chunk of the Bible that you would love to engage with, and then you want to jump, jump in on that one. So because there's six different plans, there's six different start dates, and one of them is tomorrow. And it's a pretty neat thing. And if you don't have a smartphone or you don't do any of that, um, you can find it on the internet at Bible.com. It'll take you to their site and you can register with your name. And uh, there's some links that we have put in our e-news that will guide you to joining these plans. And what's kind of cool about it, whether you're either in the, the web version or an app version, is you get to kind of track your progress and you also get to interact with people that are reading. So somebody else is reading along and you, they might make a comment on one specific day and then you go, ah, oh, I never thought of that. This is why we need each other. This is why we walk together. If, if you had everything you needed, then, you know, well, you would be Jesus, right? And so we know that, at least I know, I'm not, I'm not that. And so I need you and we're going to lock arms and walk through it together. And it's been a pretty neat thing. So all that to say, if you are not sure where to go or you every year start in Genesis and quit by the time you get to Deuteronomy or whatever it is that you do to kind of engage with Scripture, here's a good way to do it. This first plan, I think it's about 10 days, and then we jump into the Torah, which, you know, is a bit like a marathon for people who like to run 5Ks. This is typically how I would describe reading through the Torah. And so uh, that's the first five books of the Old Testament. But my goodness, God's weaving a story, the same story, from the opening words of Genesis to the end of Revelation. And, uh, and you're a part of it. You get to be in it. You get to participate in what God is up to. And uh, his invitation is, is for you to engage with his people and walk on that journey. So, um, you know, when we started this a year ago, we had no idea a pandemic was coming, but we're going to keep doing it. And uh, so I hope, you, hope you'll join in somehow or find some way to connect with people and scripture so that God can do what he wants in your heart and in your life. That would be great. I mean, if you're going to take any truth from 2020 into the coming year, I, I would hope it would be this truth right here. We have no idea what the coming year will bring, Right. I mean, if we could agree on anything, we could say, you know what, even if, even if you had a crystal ball, nobody would believe you if you described what happened in 2020. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about, you know, this subject or that subject or this area or that person's demise or whatever. We have no idea what the coming year will bring. And so the idea of predicting or even preparing seems a little ludicrous, doesn't it? We're kind of on a journey. Don and I watched just for a few minutes the, the little Times Square gathering on New Year's Eve. Did you, anybody watch, anybody tune in on that? I don't think anybody did. I think we were the only two. <laughs> and we turn it on and, you know, it's live. There's Times Square. Oh my gosh, you know. And there's a stage and there's some music artists and it's just, it's just empty. There's a little group here, a little group there. And so just in my little imaginator, which is very active, by the way, I have a very active imagination. I wonder, what, 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 if you had a, what if you had a picture? What if somebody did like a, you know, from one of those balconies there near Times Square, took a little picture of, of, of Times Square, New Year's Eve, 
right before 2021 kicks off. And then you could go back in time with that picture. Go back to maybe, I don't know, New Year's Day a year ago. And you could pull a few people aside. Let's say you had a limit of four or five people. And you could say, look, I can't tell you why this is. I can't tell you what's going on. But this is a picture of Times Square in about 12 months. And that's all you could tell them. Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> wouldn't it be kind of a blast? I mean, they would just completely freak out on you, wouldn't they? They'd be like, uh, oh, you know, what's going to happen? And, and that's all you could know. That's it. Times Square is good. So what would you think? What would you, what would you conjure? What would you ponder is coming? Would you think pandemic? Would you think, you know, maybe some terrorist threat? You, your imagination would go a thousand different places. The idea of preparing for what was inevitably going to happen that we didn't know was going to happen in 2020 is just absolutely bonkers to think about. And even when you know what's coming, okay, Coloradoans, uh, really anybody across the country, even when you know what's coming, we're horrible preparers. We do all the wrong things. Even when you thought something was going to happen, your impulse was to go buy toilet paper. So if you knew, if you knew this is coming, what would you do? Well, we would go buy meat and toilet paper. That's what we would do, which, you know, are good. If you're going to buy two things, that, that's pretty good things to buy. But it doesn't help you during a pandemic, does it? Not at all. When we prepare, we prepare in all of the wrong ways. Even if you could know what was coming, I'll speak for me, I probably would do all the wrong things to prepare. So when the Christmas story wraps up and we launch into the adult lives of the disciples and Jesus and John the Baptist, which happens very quickly in the Gospels, it's all about preparing. That's what it's about. From the very first words in all the Gospels, once the birth stories are done, Jesus in the temple was a little boy, all of a sudden we're preparing. And it's John the Baptist that kind of kicks it off. Here's what it says in the Gospel of John. The next day, John. Now, two different Johns, right? John, the disciple, the beloved, the apostle. This is John the Baptist in the Scripture. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples John the Baptist had disciples, if you didn't know that. He had some people that followed him. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. Now, now we're in the first chapter of John. This happens very quickly. John tells the Christmas story in about 14, 15 verses. But John the Baptist began his ministry. This is, he's probably around 30 years old. And when he begins his ministry, it is all about preparing. That's why he came. It's what his deal was. It's what Isaiah the prophet said, you know, hundreds of years before John was even born, that there would be one that would come and prepare the way. It's what Isaiah says. In fact, it's pretty clear that that's exactly what's going on. As it is written in the book, the words of Isaiah the prophet, Luke reminds us, John would be a voice of one calling in the wilderness to do what? Say it with me. To do what? Prepare the way for the Lord. That's what he's going to do. He's going to prepare. How would you do that? How would you prepare? You know how to prepare for all kinds of things. For a dinner, for Christmas, shopping, wrapping. And you know how to prepare for, you know, first day of school if you're going back. We hope and want normalcy. You know how to prepare for normalcy and all the things. So how would you prepare for the Messiah? What would you do? How would you do John's job? 
how would you prepare for Jesus? When John does it, he confronts people about their sin. That's how he does it. The main thing John does is he shows up, starts preaching his wild prophet message. And you know John, he's wearing this, you know, camel hair and eating locusts and wild honey, and he hasn't cut his hair since he was born because of a very specific vow his parents made. And he looks like a crazy man, and he's preaching a message. And his message is, you're a sinner. That's his message. Now, we don't mind being called sinners. In fact, let's just try this little experiment. Who in the room is a sinner? Let me see your hands. So we're good with that. Yeah, we're a sinner. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We're all sinners. We're good. But then when I start getting specific, like if I were to tell you right now Gary's sin or Brian's sin, then we start to squirm. Don't we squirm? Why? Well, I'm next. You're going to tell tell people my sin? No, 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 I, I like general sin. You're getting specific about my sin. But sin is always specific, isn't it? It's never general. It's always a thing that you do, think, or feel. It's something within you that rises up against who God is. God says, go this way, and there's something in you that says, mm, no, I don't think so, I'm going to go this way. Sin is always specific. And so John shows up, and he doesn't just say, you're all just a bunch of sinners. He gets very specific, and he calls out specific sin, even does so with the political leadership, and it would ultimately cost him his life. Sin. Specific sin. So what did he say? Here's what he said. He's out by the River Jordan, and he says... You brood of vipers. That's a good opening line for a sermon, isn't it? It's a little, ouch. Is this how church is going to be today? You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And then he gets more specific about their sin. Now, keep in mind, John incites this revolution out by the River Jordan. He begins preaching and he gathers a crowd. There are some people that are coming because they are drawn and they resonate with his message. There are other people that are coming because they look out their little portico or whatever and they see a crowd down by the river Jordan and they begin to think well I wonder what's happening down there they've heard about John so they've come from some distance and they understand there's this new prophet and so they come and they listen people are just like church they're for all kinds of reasons why are you here checking a box got some guilt over the last week you need to get rid of and showing up at church does something for you what is it people came to hear John for all kinds of reasons remember John is a nobody he's a nobody he's got no authority he's got no position 
He doesn't have a board of directors. He's not got a big deal that he's trying to build or run or take care of or grow. He's a nobody. Not important as far as anybody is concerned. He's down by the river. He's got no building like any self-respectable preacher, right? Would have a building for sure. Maybe a plane if you're really good. He's got none of that. And so if somebody doesn't like what John's saying, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? They're going to leave. Who cares? They're just going to walk away. Long-haired hippie called me a sinner? Who does he think he is? And many people did. You could imagine when he starts off with, you brood of vipers. Immediately that cuts the crowd in half, doesn't it? Who would come out and hear that just for fun? Nobody. But some people stayed. Who stays to hear John? Who sticks around for that? When John says, you're a sinner, there are some people that hear him and they think, "Ah, you just hit your target, dude. You nailed me. You're right. How did you know? I mean, he is a prophet. You got me. I want to hear what you have to say. Um, You just read my mail. You called my number. You apparently know what's going on in my heart. In fact, he does. John is saying to a group of people, the problem that you have, the problem in your life, the problem in your family, the problem in your deal, the problem in your business, the problem in your marriage, the problem in your family, everything. The problem isn't out there. The problem isn't Rome. The problem isn't Herod. The problem is in you. That's where the problem is. The problem's in your heart. And that problem we can deal with. In fact, it's the only problem you have any control over at all. It's the only problem you can even pull the lever and try to move toward God and have it fix it, have him heal it, have him give you a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. This is exactly what John's message was. The people who didn't like his message or got bored with his message or offended at his message, the ones that left and turned around and walked away, cut the crowd in a half, maybe by a third, maybe there was 10 people left, I don't know. Those were the ones who said, I believe the problem's not here, it's out there. The problem is out there. The problem's with the government. The problem's with how they've handled this pandemic. The problem's with whoever's in charge or whoever's going to be in charge. That's where the problem is. And John says, no, that's not where the problem is. The problem is in here. And those were the ones that stayed. And they asked John a question. You know what they asked him? If you read in the Gospels, you'll see they ask him the exact same question almost every time. What should we do? What do you want me to do? In other words, you nailed me, you busted me, you're right, I get it. What should we do? This is the question every follower of Jesus ends up asking when the calendar turns over a new year. Lord, what do you want me to do? 
when they have a pile of resources they aren't sure what to do with, when somebody's upset with them and maybe they've walked down a wrong path, broken a relationship over something, what should we do? The same question. Open-handed, Lord, direct me and guide me. This is all God wants from me and from you on any given day is to wake up knowing that the day before us, the hours and minutes that will drag on during the daylight of, the, of any given weekday or weekend day or Sunday, doesn't matter, that they don't belong to us. Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to use it? What do you want to do with me? Who do you want me to love? Who do you want me to forgive? These are the things that God is at work in. And they ask, what should we do? Now, back to the passage in John. The next day, same verse we read before, John was there again with, with two of his disciples. If you've ever wondered where the 12 came from, the 12 that ended up following Jesus, disciples, some become apostles later as the church gets its start. If you've ever wondered where they came from and, and how they got their start, Jesus didn't just find all of them about their business and their normal everyday work. We have the impression when we read some of the accounts in the Gospels that there were uh, just some fishermen and Jesus went out to find some fishermen because it sounded good to say, I will make you fishers of men. So that's why he picked them. That's not why. He picked them, at least the first four or five disciples, because they were John's disciples. And because John stood up and called them a brood of vipers and their hearts were so hard that they left, they stayed. Their hearts were soft and sensitive and that's who Jesus started with. In fact, the two that he started with, John will later tell us that one of them is Andrew and I think probably the other one was, was John the apostle, John the disciple. And Peter's not far. Andrew's nearby. Peter's probably pretty close. Nathaniel ends up kind of joining the crew pretty quickly. At least the first five disciples were probably, and maybe more, I don't know, followers of John the Baptist before they ever met Jesus because they resonated with John's message, which was the problem isn't out here. The problem is in here. So what am I going to do about it? How can I figure this out? How can I find my way forward? And so two disciples, John, saw, sees Jesus walking by, and John says, look, the Lamb of God. So this is how he's preparing. He's been saying all along, there's another one coming. It's not me. There's another one coming. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. There's another one. I, I, I'm going to become lesser. He's going to become greater. John was forever pointing his finger, pointing his ministry, pointing his words, pointing the direction of everything to Jesus. And so when these disciples hear John say, there it is, well, as soon as he says it, they they go. When the two disciples heard him say this, what does it say? What they do? They what? They follow Jesus. Now, John, the author of this gospel, he means this quite literally, just very plainly and very specifically. There walks Jesus. John the Baptist is probably by the river, probably in the middle of baptizing somebody. And he says, there goes, there goes the Lamb of God. And so these two disciples, Andrew and probably John, although he's unnamed, they turn and they follow. The word that's used there is this word, akalutheo. It's a Greek word. That's the 
English transliteration of the Greek word. And we spell it that way so that we know how to pronounce it. Akalutheo. Say it with me. A little Greek for you today, okay? You know a little Greek, right? Just enough to order something at the restaurant down the street. Say it with me. Akalutheo. One more time. Akalutheo. The, the root is over here in the lutheo part, and it means road. That's what it means. That there is a road, and there's somebody on that road, and I'm going to walk on that road, not because it's the road of where I want to go, how I'm going to get to where I hope I'm going. I'm going to walk on that road because of the person who is on that road. I'm going to follow down that road. And there's all kinds of other meanings that are wrapped up in the complexity of this Greek word, that, that he is a master, that he is a rabbi, that the person we're following, we're walking alongside, but he's actually leading. All of this is in the context, in the depth, and the really the, the beauty of this word, akalutheo, and they begin to follow. And then Jesus turns around, he sees these two fellas, he knows who they are, he turns around, Jesus saw them and he asked, what was his question? What do you want? This isn't the only time in the gospels that Jesus asked this question. He asks it over and over and over again. It's a really important question. And he turns to these two men and he asks this question on a, on a superficial level, but also on a deeper level because this is going to shape their life what they want next, what they want out of this relationship with Jesus, why they're hanging with John, why they immediately, think about how incredible it is, immediately switch their allegiance from the one who probably baptized them in the River Jordan to this new teacher. Jesus looks at him and says, what do you want? This question is a sorting question. What do you want? In other words, what's important to you? What will you give things up for? What will you sacrifice for? Jesus is asking, as he does many times in the Gospels, what are your values? What matters more to you? Didn't you ask yourself this question a thousand times over the last year? What are you missing? Why are you missing it? What do you want? And it's asked all through Scripture, and we see the paths that people take when they ask and answer this question. Adam and Eve wanted independence and knowledge more than they wanted to walk with God in the cool of the garden, didn't they? What do you want, Adam and Eve? And they took it. They took what they wanted. The nation of Israel wanted a king more than they wanted to trust God with their future. And so they got a king. The Pharisees in the New Testament, what do they want? Spiritual power, pride, and position, and they got it at the expense of everything else. What is it that you want? All throughout this year, I imagine you've had feelings that are represented by any number of these words. Anger and fear and apathy and judgment. You could add some other words like indignation and, and self-righteousness. And I, I, I know what's right. Why don't they do this? Why don't they go down this path? Why haven't they answered these questions this way? Why are they being cloak and dagger about all this stuff? You fill in the blank. Your feelings that you had at any given moment cause you to rush into this question, what is it that you want? When you were feeling some of these things, pick one. You pick one that fits maybe the majority or maybe one that kept coming back to you throughout the year. When you had that feeling, God is some distance from you while this bubbles up inside and he's asking, what is it that you want? What do you want?
Well, I'm angry. I'm angry, God. Why? Tell me why. Every one of these feelings and a dozen more that aren't on the screen that you've experienced over the many weeks and months, and this isn't just this year, it's your whole life. Every one of these feelings is an invitation from God to come and sit with him, you and God, and put this mess between the two of you. And for God to say, tell me what's going on. Well, I'm angry. What are you angry about? This isn't going the way I want. What do you want? I want my kids to behave. Yeah, I get that. I feel the same way. God chuckles a little, right? I don't like it when my kids misbehave either. Wink. He winks at you. What happens when he winks at you? You start to think, oh, I think he's talking about me. Every one of these is an invitation to put this mess between you and God and to sort it out. Now, what we are tempted to think is, well, my anger is my anger. It just is, and it is because things aren't the way they should be. Or my sadness is because sad things have happened. That's why I feel sad. This is why this is happening. And while that all is true, it's still an invitation. The invitation is to come before God and say, this is what's going on inside of me. What am I supposed to do with it? And when you do, God meets you in it. This is your chance. The mess is the chance to draw near to me. What will you do? Give God a chance to speak into it. Let him sort out. Or sometimes I want things that have nothing to do with you. I want the other thing. Ah, we need to work on that. Now we're getting to the good business of what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus. What do you want? So Jesus says, what do you want? And when he says, what do you want? They come back with another question. It's like they've been around Jesus already, answering questions with questions. They say to him, rabbi, which means teacher, probably a better translation is master, which is pretty powerful. And they didn't just come to this conclusion. They weren't just messing with their nets and a Jewish man walked by and they had some Jedi mind trick performed on them. They're followers of John the Baptist. They've been baptized in the Jordan. They're convicted of their own sin. John said there's another one coming. Finally, Jesus shows up. And they're ready. You're you're rabbi. You're master to us. And so they have another question. It's a great question. You got to look a little deeper. Where are you staying? Where are you staying? In other words, where you're going, we want to go. We want to go with you. And we don't just want to go for the day. And we just don't want to go for dinner. Where are you staying? Where are you bedding down? Where are you going to be spending the evening and the night and the next morning? That's where we want to go. It's really a simple question, isn't it? I mean, it's a profound question that they're asking. It talks about their intentions and the purpose of their heart and where they're walking and why. But really... It is a a simple question that could be answered very simply. Where are you staying? I mean, you would think that Jesus would just say, oh, I'm staying over by Bob's house. You know, we're going to be over near the stable. I like stables. I don't know why. You know, whatever it is that Jesus is going to say, you would think he would just simply answer it. But Jesus' answer, his response is the beginning of a journey that the disciples are engaged in, that they're walking on. And as they're walking on this journey, this answer from Jesus has so much 
foretelling about what is to come. Jesus looks at him and says, come and you'll see. Just go with me. In other words, I'm not going to tell you where we're going. Just get your stuff. Let's go. That's where we're going. All you need to know is that you're with me. That's all that matters. You're just with me. Yeah, yeah, but where are you going? Where are you headed? Just come, come with me. You will see. And what we say is, I don't want to see. I want to know. And Jesus says, no, 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 just one more step. Just walk with me. One more step. And so the invitation that Jesus gives to me and to you, it seems to be as simple as these two words, follow me. Just a bit later in John, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and he found Philip. Another, he's adding to his 12 every time, another ad. He finds Philip, and he says to him, follow me. Akalutheo, follow me. Akalutheo, go with me. And this invitation to follow is repeated in the Gospels over and over and over again. There, there's a bunch of invitations in the Gospels. If you want, you can read all four Gospels and just look for the invitations, and you'll see the invitations. The invitation to sell your stuff, the invitation to come and lay down your burdens. Jesus gives all kinds of invitations, and they're not just for the people in the Gospels. They're recorded and kept for us too. But this is the first invitation he gives, and he gives it to me and you as we begin to start out this year. Follow me. It's that simple. Yeah, 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 but where's your list of doctrine and beliefs? No, come on, come on, just follow me. Yeah, yeah, t t tell me about the budget and, and where we're going and, and what's going to happen. No, 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 come on, you're confused. You confused me with, a, with an institution. It's not an institution. It's a relationship. So what do you want me to do? Well, you see the step I took. Take that one. But what about after that? Well, we'll deal with it. Take that one first. Just take that one. That's all. I want answers. Ah, what you need to do is trust. Grow in trust, and then you can follow. When you respond to Jesus' invitation to follow him, if you're a follower of Jesus, there are two questions that are always answered for you. And they're very important questions. And the first question is, where am I going? Now, the where? Well, we don't know exactly where. But the question's answered. We're going where Jesus is going. Akalutheo, Lutheo, on the road. Who's on the road? Jesus. What's the road called? What's the narrow road? It, it winds and it goes here and it goes there and it goes up the hill and down the vale and in the mountain. And this is where it goes. I don't know if you know the map. You don't need a map. All you need to do is have your eyes on Jesus, as Hebrews says. We fix our eyes on him. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. And so we follow him. Where are we going tomorrow? Don't worry about tomorrow. You get the feeling when you watch the disciples follow Jesus that the idea of asking, what are we going to do tomorrow, is just utterly absurd. I don't think they asked that question at all. If they did, they asked it once. And then they all looked at each other and said, yeah, that's silly. What, we, what am I thinking? We're going to follow him. I don't know where we're going. Might go over to Nazareth, might go up to Galilee, might go down to Jerusalem. We're going to follow him. That's what we're going to do. That's where we're going to go. 
In other words, where I'm going is just a pattern, my life, my values, how I live after his teachings. You could read the Gospels, only the Gospels for your entire life and never run out of endeavors and challenges and hurdles in every relationship you've got. You know that, right? When Jesus talks about what it means to love or how it means to go after the kingdom or what it means to love your enemies or love God and love your neighbor, and I mean, I'm, we're just scratching the surface, right? I mean, these are the big rocks that are in the, the, the container of Christendom. This is what it means to follow him, to live out these words. And so I'm forever going to be challenged to love the way Jesus loves. It's not harder and more complex than that. I'm forever going to be challenged to, to love those who have not treated me well, to forgive people that have wronged me, to trust him with my life. Oh, my goodness. It feels like I'm learning all these things over and over again. You too? Where am I going? It's a narrow road. That's one question that's already answered if you're a follower of Jesus. And the second one is this. Who else is on this journey with me? Who else? Who else is with me as I take this journey? This question is already answered too. Every other person who is following Jesus, that's who's with you. I know, right? It's kind of a bummer. There's no draft for disciples. Nobody gets to, you know, go for the highest bidder. You don't get to pick who's on your team, for goodness sakes. They're already on your team if they follow Jesus. Even those people that think those things or maybe believe those other beliefs or go to that other weird church or, you know, you name it. There's all kinds of people who are part of this journey with you and you're with them on the same journey and they're kind of stuck with you too. The disciples were just like this. Thaddeus, you ask Thaddeus? Come on, wh what did they think when Jesus looked at Judas and said, follow me? Him? We all know a little bit about Judas. He's, he's one of us. He's not one of us. James and John thought they were better than everybody else. They said, you know, give us a seat at the right and the left hand of God. I mean, you know, they're with us, but they're not really with us, right? You already know who's with you on the journey. It's been a lot of line drawing over the last 10 months among followers of Jesus who's in and who's out, who believes this or believes that or voted this way or voted that way or subscribes to this conspiracy theory or thinks this about the kingdom or the revelation and the mark of the beast and the vaccination. And I could go on and on and on how many lines have been drawn by people who are followers of Jesus who have completely forgotten that the people who are on this journey with us, well, it hasn't been decided by you and you don't get to pick because Jesus... He loves your neighbor. He loves your family members. And he loves those people that you know, that you disagree with, that you don't enjoy spending time with. He loves them so much. And he loves you the same way. And so Jesus says, follow me. Akalutheo. And he does it over and over and over again in the Gospels. He tells the disciples, follow me. 
And so by the time he's near the end of his three-year ministry, he said that so much. They just walk in his dust, and they're covered in his dust. And they look like him, and they smell like him, and they're beginning to think like him, but they're missing a few things, a few really important pieces. And so Jesus begins talking about the end of his journey on earth, and he says, this is going to be part of my journey. He says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and when I get to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest me. They're going to beat me, and then they're going to kill me, and on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And then he said it again. He said, I don't know if you guys caught that, but here's what's going to happen. We're headed down to Jerusalem. And when we get to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest me. They're going to beat me. And then they're going to kill me. But on the third day, I'm going to rise again. Are you following? Where are we going? We're going down to Jerusalem. I guess that's what's going to happen. And I guess we're going to go. We're going to follow you. In fact, Jesus was so clear about this part of the journey At one point, he said to the disciples, if you're going to follow me, you have to take up your cross every day. He meets Martha when Lazarus is dead and in the grave, when they're all grieving out on the road. And she says, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And Jesus looks at Martha and everyone listening, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, even though you die, you will live. And the person who believes in me will never die. That's what Jesus says. And so if you're at home, right here in this room, we want to invite you to gather your communion elements and have them ready as we talk through communion and take it in unison together. I'll invite Danny up. He's going to play a little bit while we do this. And you can reach in front of you and the chair in front of you. And if you're in a front row, then you can expect Cindy Veith to come by in just a moment. And she's going to give you a chance to have some elements in your hand as well. One of the things that we've been doing about since the middle of the pandemic is taking communion together in unison, if you will. Normally when we're taking communion, you know, pre-COVID, We would end up lining up in this room in various places and receiving it from somebody else. And they say very special and very important and very intimate words. It's one of the beauties of communion together. This is the body of Christ broken for you. And this is the blood of Christ poured out for you. And if you happen to know the person who's in line, they they might even use your name when they say it. And when they do... There's an intimate moment that occurs. Well, we are spread out. We're a church dispersed. There's, I don't know, 150 people watching online right now who have scrambled and run to their kitchen just now to get whatever bread or juice they have handy. I mean, the first Sunday in January sneaks up on everybody, doesn't it? But in your hand is a representation of this and this, the body and the blood. And so now as we take communion together, I want you to have in mind, those of you who are in this room, somebody who is not in this room, that's a part of this body. And I want you to pray for them, lift them up. And those of you who are watching online, uh, we're grateful that you are safe and well, and we hope and pray that you continue to stay safe and well. And we long for the day when we'll all be together, but I want you to ponder somebody that you're not with as well in this body and pray for them. 
so that we do not lose the connection of community that is part of being a, a member of the body of Christ. Sometimes we're together, sometimes we're apart. That's not different. But now we long to be together. And we know that God is knitting us together in unique ways. Why? Uh, I'm a follower of Jesus, just like you. I don't get to pick and choose which commands of Jesus I'll want to live by. Jesus seems to pick them for me, which ones are gonna be a focus of my life for a period of a day or a week or maybe a decade. Also, don't get to pick who walks with me. I'm walking with you and you're walking with me. So Jesus held up the bread with his disciples. It represents his life. Jesus, at one point in the Gospel of John, it's recorded that he said, I am the bread of life. And he breaks it. And as he breaks it, he passes it around to his friends. And he said, this is my body. Take and eat, all of you. It's broken for you. And so at home, here in this room, take the bread, let's eat it together. Lord, we declare that you're mighty and powerful. And through this sacrament, we recognize that your body was given for us, that we would be given new bodies as well. And so we follow you, we akalutheo you down this narrow road, walking with you. And then Jesus, he took a cup. Many cups in Passover, this cup was unique because it pointed to the sacrifice that would be made. And he said, this is my blood that's poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And then he made a promise that he would not drink again of this fruit of the vine until we're all gathered together. So wrapped up in this cup are the three that Paul said remain, faith, hope, and love. All three together. Faith that we are forgiven, hope that we'll one day gather together, and love that binds us together as a family. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. And so they passed this cup around and they all drank from it, just like we will now in your homes and here in this room. And so, Lord, we ask as we remember this moment. We recognize that what you have given us is nourishment. It is life and it is reflected fully and completely in your love for us. We are forgiven and we are free. And so Lord, knit us together as a family. May we never lose sight of all the many that are walking alongside of us that we don't necessarily get to gather with on a Sunday or even our neighbors, our family members, our friends and our coworkers. Lord, every image bearer that you have ever made, may we love them the way Jesus loves us. And Lord, this is our prayer for the coming year, for this church body, for us as a family, for each of us individually, that you would help us to seek you, to dig into your word, to learn and to grow. to follow your son. And as we do that, would you just build our lives in whatever ways 
you find meaningful, hopeful, purposeful. We don't anticipate, we're not naive enough to think that this year will turn out the way we expect. But we believe that we're with you and that in your presence, we will have everything that we need. For you you will never leave us. You will never forsake us. So Lord, as we sing these lyrics, close out the service, we ask that you would be present, that we would seek your face, and that we would know you.